right, good morning, everybody. I'm losing my voice a little bit, so you're going to have to listen good. It's good to see you. Um, thanks for those of you that are coming back after our awesome Easter service last week. Um, again, I just want to emphasize some of those great announcements, affinity groups, sign up. I think we have over 200 people that have signed up so far for our groups, so we're super pumped about what God's going to do there. So, um, hey, I want to jump right into our series today. We're continuing the series, which we're going to do all through April. And uh, last week, we started it with, with this question, really this statement. The series starts with, I want to believe, but if you've ever been challenged for your beliefs or hopefully you have had some doubts, I think doubts create an urgency in us to find answers and to find truth. And God actually likes people to seek things out. He, he's, he's not as a big a fan of the apathetic that is laid back. And, and hang out and just take things as they are. In fact, he likes for you to seek things out. He wants you to be studious. He wants you to ask questions. So doubt is not bad. And, and we want to hit some of these doubts. So last week we talked with the question, I want to believe, but what about the resurrection? How can I believe someone was raised from the dead? And we put forth some proof or some evidence or some uh, substantiation as to substance as to why we believe Christ was resurrected. And that is a powerful moment. And you can actually use your brain and your reasoning and your thinking to come to this conclusion of faith through history and evidence. And this is what I love about, of course, we're going to hear from C.S. Lewis today. Um, my middle name is Sean, so I'm C.S. Pate from now on. Um, but I love people like William Lane Craig, Ravi Zacharias. Um, there's just so many uh, amazing speakers out there and people that... that that are thinking and doing a great job of articulating what it is that Christians believe. But not only just what, but why. Why is that even crucial? Why is that needed? And, and here's what I want to bring to you because there's a lot of questions. There's a lot of things we can hit. Next week we're going to talk about the problem of evil and how can I believe in God with, with evil or how can I deal with evil. And so we're going to hit some different things. But today I want to talk about the statement. I want to believe, but with the question, how can I believe a good God would send people to hell? So let's talk about hell. This is going to be fun today, right? First service was quiet. But I think this is a topic we must approach and must talk about because it is a fundamental truth of Christianity. In, in, in not quite the same way, but close to the same way, as, as powerful as the resurrection is and how we said it is really the, the hinge or the linchpin of all of Christianity. If you could find a body, we're done. But there is no body, so we win. <laughs> yeah, that almost rhymed, almost rhymed. But the concept of hell, especially nowadays, and we talked about tolerance and, and how extreme tolerance is ultimately intolerant of something and ultimately but this this aspect and this idea in our culture today that God is just love and how could a loving God if you claim for him to be love and good how could he send someone into eternal torture have you ever had this question if you have it you should and I feel like I was reading through the scripture this this week and uh the book of Jude came up if you look in the New Testament the book of Jude Jude starts his whole soliloquy to the church coming in and saying this, I really wanted to talk about our shared experience in salvation and how great God is, but I feel compelled to help you and talk about how you need to contend for the faith. 
You need to be able to use your brain. You need to be able to talk about why we believe what we believe because you are being bombarded constantly with other beliefs and other thoughts. Maybe you're in here saying, well, I'm not a Christian. I don't, I, I don't believe any of that. And, and, and I would say for you, you have a belief system as well, just like we do. And I don't think it's bad. Let's talk about those. Let's have questions. And that's one reason why we're doing these types of sermons and this type of, of series is because we want to say one of two things. We want to strengthen you for why you believe what you believe and that it's reasonable and good and thought out and you can use your brain as a Bible-believing Christian. But also, we want to say it's okay to ask questions and let's talk and let's converse and let's go, let's reason together as the scripture says, and let's talk through these things and let's try to figure out truth. Let's find truth. Now, if you're in here and you're saying God is just love, and, and, and he, he's, just, he's just all loving. Well, what do we mean by love? What do we mean by God? And, and when you talk to people like this, they, they, they'll say things a lot of times that in my conversations that I've had, they'll say things like, you're, okay, you're trying to make it so complicated and you're just twisting things. And I would say to them, you're trying to make it too simple. Some of these topics and some of these things are way too simplified. And if you think about anything in life, just look at life in general. Look at this pulpit. This pulpit by itself might seem simple. I actually put it together when they, when they brought me the pieces. I screwed it together and I put it together. And it seems just like a simple thing. But if you actually go into it and think about what's happening right now, me amplifying my voice and what's bouncing off of this and the trajectory of what's happening and the light hitting this and the molecular structure. If you really get down deep, there is so much going on that we have to simplify it so we're not overwhelmed. And this is the need for Christian doctrine and for understanding and to be able to actually think thoughts out, not to dismiss them because, oh, that seems complicated. We need something simple. Everything can be ultimately complicated, so we need to be able to describe what it is we mean, especially when we're talking about words like love, God, hell. What do we mean? And this question... First of all, I don't think it's a, it, it's a valid question. I don't think it's an accurate question because it's not the only question. The problem with this question, on, on the surface it seems like, yeah, that's so true. Why would a good God, if you believe in hell, why would he do something like that? On the surface that might seem true. But as we look at it and really think about it, we need to define some terms and figure out maybe there is something what does the scripture say? What does reason say? What does our culture say? And let's try to find truth. Now for us, I would say, and I'm talking to Christians, I think it's, it's easy really nowadays to not want to necessarily search for truth or to try to find truth or morality within yourself. Just look in yourself. The problem is if you believe the scripture, we talked a little bit last week about how if, if you don't trust, you, you might not trust the eyewitness and the evidence for the scripture, but you cannot dismiss it as not true and just, uh, just mythology because there is more textual and manuscript evidence for scripture, and it's especially the New Testament, than any other work of antiquity in the world. So you can't just dismiss it or you have to dismiss everything else we know about anything else in history. 
We have to be able to say, okay, let's look at it and what does it say? And what troubles me is even in the church today, we're not sure what we believe about hell because we don't want to come down on people. We don't really want to talk about sin and some of these harsh things and tell people they're not allowed to do things or they shouldn't do things. We just want to express love and say everything's all right and everything's fine. The problem with that is the scripture would say we're, we're trying and acting like we have the gospel, but we're denying the power of the gospel. And the power is the power that transforms your life and changes your desires and can actually deliver you from these things that you're saying is acceptable and fine. And that's what we need in our culture extremely badly. And so I want to encourage you today, hopefully, with some understanding of some of these concepts, I, I'm concerned because books came out, even in the Christian world, like Love Wins, Rob Bell. Um, uh, there's a new uh, Netflix documentary um, from Carlton Pearson. I don't know if you've seen it, called Come Sunday. I think it's coming out like this Friday. And the premise of it is a good, about a decade ago, he, he, he heard a voice from God that told him that everyone's saved. There's no hell and then from there, like, there's no, there's no Satan, there's no, and it just started crumbling everything else into now. It's really just this concept of universalism. Yeah, we needed Jesus, but there's no punishment. Everyone is going to be with God one day. And gosh, that sounds like such a loving message until you actually start thinking about things like love and God and hell. And maybe even ask this question, how can a good God send people to hell? I think there's a parallel question with that. And that's this question, how can a just God receive people into heaven? See, the concept of the first question is this. I'm a good person, I have my morality, and I'm willing to forgive people, you know, they cut me off on 610, which will happen after this service. <laughs> Promise, guarantee, that's a prophetic word. <laughs> a pathetic word. But, you know, I, would, I forgive people and, you know, they hurt me. And I'm, I'm morally right for doing that. How could God not do that? Well, the stance is my morality, is, is it better than God's? Well, of course not. But, but the question is, where, where's justice? When we look at what happened probably last night with a teenage girl having, having sex 30 times victim sex 30 times in human trafficking, which we fight thanks to Holly and Sterling and their leadership and exchange ministry, and we try to bring awareness. When we think about that, where's justice for her if we just wink at sin? Yeah, of course, we just forgive. Where's justice? The, the only people that proclaim God is love, and we don't need that sense of justice because he just forgives, probably have never really experienced true victimization. And sin against them. It's, it's easily a Western philosophy and mindset in our comfort and ease just to say, yeah, we forgive. But not understand there's justice involved in the characteristics of God as well. Or he is not good. He cannot be good if he's not a just judge willing to hand out a punishment to those that deserve it. To those that have done wrong. Now, we do say, who am I to cast that exactly? This is another thing in our culture. 
That's a beautiful thing about the justice of God is that I don't have to take vengeance against my enemies and just have this circular thing happening between me and my family and my tribe constantly where I get back at them for wrongdoing and they get back at me and I get back at them and they get back at me because I know in the end God is just and he is good and he will take care of sin and sinners and that is also love. That is also who God is. So when we define some of these things, we have to think through what this looks like. And I want to postulate to you that you need to think through this. You need to have a paradigm for this and think about multiple sides because it is paramount to understanding Christianity. And I think just understanding our world and our culture. Hebrews 6 one through two says it this way. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And then he's going to explain what are these kind of basic foundational doctrines. Here they are. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, instruction about washings or baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, which we hit last week, and eternal judgment. He says this is a basic pillar foundation of just what it means to be in Christ. Let's not just leave this behind or let's leave this behind so we can move on to other issues. But the problem is if we're still struggling with this concept of hell because we can't formulate an idea that a loving God would allow punishment, we need to strengthen this area of our life and maybe kind of build a better rhetoric and understanding amongst us to say, what does this mean about God if it is true? And how do we know it's true? Do we just claim because I wouldn't do that or our culture wouldn't do that, that that is right morality? I think we're entering into dangerous territories as if we know everything and we are all moral. And we enter into these dangerous territories when we make declarations without thinking, and I think without having a plumb line or a substance to why we believe what we believe. A Christian would say scripture is that. So foundationally, this is a concept, eternal judgment is a foundation. Another scripture, Jesus, is, he talked about hell a lot. And I think it's because he knew he was going to taste it. He talked about it a lot. Mark 9, 43 through 47 says this, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Wait, wait, no, let's, let's go back. Let's talk about, you know, the woman at the well that he was so sweet to and he forgave her. Let's not talk about sin. Like, no, don't hit that. That's crazy. That's not God. That's like Old Testament, this blood, angry God. Wait, 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 wait. Maybe I'm wrong and I need to read scripture and find out what scripture says, not adapt scripture to what I want or what I think. Thus making me God, me all-knowing, not allowing scripture to speak. Let's reconcile some of these things that seem different to say, how did these actually meet and perform and, and, and show something beautiful in God? But this is harsh. You know, I'm not going to get a lot of amens. Verse 45, if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Altar call right now, right now. <laughs> it is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, 
tear it or gouge it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That's a pretty graphic description of hell. And, and, and he goes on, I could give you more if you want to look at Matthew 25, 31 through 46. Jesus actually talks about when the Son of Man enters glory, the angels are with him, he's going to sit on a throne and he's going to put people to the right or to the left depending on their belief. And he says this, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will say to the Lord, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? We would have never done that to you, Jesus. And, and didn't minister to you. And he says, truly I say to you. As you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Man, I like the Jesus. I like my baby Jesus, eight pounds. Right? I like this kind of Jesus. We cannot create a God out of our own image. We are created in his image. But then we have to be able to justify how can a loving, gracious, merciful God send someone to eternal punishment with how can a just God receive someone into eternal life? How do we justify the two? This is the question ultimately. We know in 1 Timothy 2, one through four, Paul is talking to Timothy and he tells him, it is God's desire that all men and women come to know him. Do you know that's God's desire? He wants everyone to experience him and to come into his world, kingdom, presence, life. That's his desire. The problem is he gave us a will. He gave us a volitional will and soul that can choose him or choose to deny him. And he will not force himself upon you. I want to look at, for the remaining of our time, Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Another famous story that Jesus gives in talking about eternal punishment, eternal life. And this whole concept, and if you read it and study it, there's a lot to glean out of not only the goodness of God ultimately, but also what happens to people that don't choose him and his way. Look at this, verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Thank you for that addition, Jesus. 
the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Abraham was the father of the faith. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And look at this. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in his like, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, this is a story Jesus is giving. We've made an attempt or at least brought some evidence last week that if someone proclaims to be God and we can't find the body and people saw him afterwards, up to 500 people at one time, and we've seen the evidence of the church and the effects of the Spirit, and, and we know of the miracles and the things that this man did, if you're going to listen to anybody, you should listen to this guy. Like, above any author you can think of, above me, above, like, let's, what does Jesus say? And Jesus is constantly talking about things like hell, sin, also, of course, the love and grace of God, but how to live and how to act. And he's constantly bringing these things together. And he brings this story, I think it gives us a hint as to what hell is like, but even more importantly, what people are like in hell. See, I think the concept is this. You've got the bad guys, and you've got good guys, and we're going to throw the bad guys into punishment, and they're just kind of in this fire, and they're going to burn forever. Now, you might say, Chris, do you believe in a fiery hell? I would say, yes, but I believe it metaphorically. And you might say, oh, okay, whew, thank God, it's not really a place. No, no, it is, but it's metaphorically way worse than just fire. And I think there's a reason why. But it's not the same as maybe what you might think it is. And we get a little bit of a picture of this in here. Notice you've got this rich man. It doesn't give, he doesn't give him a name. He gives the poor man a name, an identity. But he, he doesn't give the rich man a name. It just simply says he was rich. He was fed every day. It said he had linens of purple, which was of regal attire. And he was very comfortable. We don't have a name which gives him identity because what we can figure out and, and see what Jesus is trying to come across is this. This man didn't find his identity in his family or his name. He ultimately, his identity and his worth was in his riches and his comfort. Now, let me, let me qualify this. God is not saying all rich people are bad and all poor people are good. Because there are bad poor people and there are good rich people. 
okay? So this isn't about, ultimately, money. This is about someone who found their identity in God and had a horrible, tough life. Okay, by prosperity gospel. And somebody who had a very comfortable and great life, but they found their identity, their food, their life, everything about them was about their comfort and their riches and materialism. Was about this earth right now. So everything was about trying to bring comfort to themselves. And here's the interesting part. You need to set that foundation. Here's why. Because then we see them both die, and it says Lazarus, although he was down, was taken up. That doesn't mean heaven is up there. It's just more of a connotation of up meaning good, down meaning bad. And, and the rich man was taken down and buried into Hades. And now we have get this picture of two different places one of torment, one of peace and ease, and a chasm between. And you've got Lazarus. Notice what Lazarus doesn't say. Notice he doesn't say, get me out of here. I don't deserve to be here. How could a just God do this to me? How could a loving God do this? He didn't say anything about that. He still is only concerned about himself and his comfort for eternity. Notice what he says. Verse 24, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. He says, he doesn't say, get me out of here. And there's not a picture of people like scraping up the walls of hell trying to get out because of this fire. But the picture is this. There is no comfort and bliss, which is ultimately what sin is apart from the presence of God. There is no beauty and grace. It is all consuming about me and my comfort. And I am uncomfortable. I don't want to go where you are, God. I don't want to be where you are. But in fact, he's still looking at Lazarus like below him and a servant to the point where he says, sin that dude. I know all about him. I sicked my dogs on him. Sin to him. He still has this righteousness in him enough to be conceited enough to say, send that dude to me to bring me comfort. You see, the picture now of hell isn't, again, just people just freaking out, but actually people just continuing in their own selfish desires. Okay, C.S. Lewis says this. I love it. Again, he says this, Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever. And this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were to live only 70 years. But which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy, are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable, except for your wife. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is the precisely correct technical term for what it would be. Eternal selfishness inside me just looking for my will to be done. He says this 
goes on in the great divorce. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others. But you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble inside going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. This concept of hell, again, it's metaphorically worse. The idea of fire that's unquenchable is what we feel when we're just in ourselves. And imagine a place without the goodness of God and what we would call good and beauty and grace and love. This is the place of torment. But C.S. Lewis would go on to say this. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. To those who knock, it is open. This concept of hell, I think part of hell and the anguish of it, is continually in, being in yourself apart from the presence of God, but ultimately knowing that this is what I chose and this is where I am and where I want to be and I don't even want to go where you are. He moves on. If we look in the scripture and this story, he moves on and says, hey, okay, so here's the deal. I, I'm, I'm not trying to get out. You know, I, I'm in this, but please, I don't, want, I don't want other people to have to go through this. Send them Lazarus to rise from the dead to tell them about this place. And Abraham says, listen, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't believe if they don't believe Moses and the prophets. Why? Because it's not a head problem. It's a heart problem. And no one can fix the heart problem with head knowledge. Because here's the concept. If if we saw the power of God in, the res in a resurrection, like right in front of me, and they spoke to me, I might believe, but I'm still believing for me. Listen, I'm not believing because I want you, God, and I want to be with you, which is what heaven is, his presence. But now I'm believing because I want your power. I want your comfort. I want to feel better. I, I come to the front and I come to altar call because I want relief, not because I want God. Let me ask you this question. Ladies, ladies, have you ever had a man pursue you that you did not want to pursue you? Raise your hands. Is he sitting next to you? <laughs> Just no, no, man. <laughs> now, if, if he keeps pursuing you, pursuing you, pursuing you, and he hasn't got the hint, you keep swiping left, whatever you're doing. Some of you might be confrontational enough to finally come up to him and say, I don't like you in that way. I just want to be friends. Now, if you've ever experienced that, Hard rejection, men, 
maybe women, it's one of the worst things you can experience. I remember I was pursuing my wife. I told my wife, we, know, we knew each other since we were nine years old. I told my wife when I was 14 years old that I was going to marry her. Coming on a little strong. <laughs> I'm a prophet. You're welcome. Because I, I did. I won her over. I have woo. It took a while. She wrote me back. I ended up moving, and it was like this big coming out. Of, we were friends, and then I told her. She wrote me back, like this real nice, sweet, okay, awesome kind of thing, you know. But I, just, I, I don't want to ruin our friendship kind of thing, right? <laughs> we continued our friendship, and it was long distance, and we didn't have text back then. I'm old. Uh, so we're, we're emailing and getting on the old email, that bad telephone stuff, oh, AOL, blah. Yeah, it was hard. You don't know. The, the struggle's real. And so... I, I, but we, we remained friends until we ended up going to the same college and it was miraculous. I didn't know she was going to go to the same college and we, we got together and sparks flew, motions ran high and we ended up getting married. <laughs> but, but listen, I backed off when she said she didn't want more because I loved her. Listen, if someone is pursuing you and you do not like them or want to pursue them in that way, a relationship, and they continue to pursue you, it will get annoying. If you confront them and tell, I don't want you, and they continue to pursue you, it will get to, to a point where you might have to go to court and get a, a straining, or like get some kind of order to keep them away, right? If they then force their presence and themselves on you in the name of I love you, we would say that is not love because true love would let you go. True love would say if you don't want me, I'm going to let you go and move on. Not I'm going to keep you and hold you hostage and you have to be with me. That actually is a form of hatred, if not evil, to force yourself on somebody that doesn't want you. This is what C.S. Lewis, this is what the scripture is saying. God will not force himself on you. God in his love will let you go. He's not going to make you be in his presence and stay in his presence. He's going to give you your will. And in the end, there's two people, either those that say, thy will be done, or God who says to them, thy will be done. You don't want me. I love you. I'll let you go. The book of Romans says the same thing. He lets us go to our lusts. The scripture would say this, on earth he'll do that. So that we'll get to the point of destruction that we will want him because we've chased it all and come to nothing. A lot of you have that testimony. I did it. I had everything. And it did not give me the satisfaction. And God let me go to it so I would taste it enough to run to him who can only satisfy. In his love, he lets us go. Now, an eternal separation is still in his love because he's not going to force himself on you and if you won't believe 
the message of Christ because he's sending, listen, he's sending you. And the scripture says he sent you creation. Look around. There's design. There must be a designer. If you walked at the beach in Galveston and you found an Apple watch on the ground and it was a deserted beach and you didn't know if anybody was there, you saw a watch, then you would know there was probably somebody there that designed the watch. You don't conclude, man, that was amazing. How in the world did the waves create an Apple watch? (laughs) He sent us creation, the designer designed. He sent us creation to bask in it and be all of it and look at it and go, this is amazing. This is beautiful. He sent us a conscience. He gave us this idea that we know what we ought to do and we don't do it. He sent us a conscience. And ultimately, he sent us the gift of Christ, his son. Because how do we rectify these questions? How could a loving God send people to hell? How could a just God receive people into his presence and not punish them for their injustice? And the only answer on the market to that question that is a real question is Jesus. God has a dilemma because he created the world good and perfect and beautiful and he creates human and we in our will botch it up, mess it up and ever since he's been on the mission to restore the earth and humans back to himself and the beauty and the goodness of creation. And he created laws, and he created a community and a kingdom on earth. But ultimately, that was just for a little while until at the culmination of time, at the right time, he brought Jesus. And Jesus, as we said last week, and this should not get old because it's true in every aspect of our life. The cross kissed both questions of mercy and grace, and justice, and righteousness at the same time. And now, listen, it's a bad question to say God wouldn't punish anybody. He loves everybody too much. It's a bad question. The question is, what do we do about the fact that we're all in trouble without God, without something happening? And the answer is believe on his son who became sin, who did the work. And if you don't believe in that, he merely says, you don't want me. And if we merely shrug off because of the name of love, whatever that means, we shrug off sin in general and injustice. God would just love. He's just loving. We just wink at sin and move on. That actually doesn't do justice to the love of God. You need to understand, without a punishment, there's not really love because the question is this, what does your God actually sacrifice to love you? Because love takes sacrifice. You don't just love. It's an act, it's a will, and ultimately it's a sacrifice. The Bible would tell husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and be willing to lay your life down for her. That is the supreme act of love. But if it's just a shoulder shrug to sin, there's no love. Let me give you an example. Suppose you're at your house, your apartment, and a friend comes over and he gets there before you. You show up and you're, you, you, you were able to let him in. And he shows up and he says, hey, uh, 
I saw you had a bill on the ground. I just went ahead and paid that bill for you. Depending on the amount of that bill would be depending on your response. If it was like a $10 utility late payment bill, you'd go, man, thanks, bro. I'll Venmo you. Like, I appreciate that. But if he says, no, it was your student loans. Your response. <laughs> God. <laughs> and it should be. Because you're going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Wait, what? And then why? Why? Because that debt was so big. You loved so great. That's amazing. If your God just loves and doesn't pay a debt, you'll serve him like this. That's my boy. If your God goes to hell, goes through hell, is in anguish and torture, shamed naked on a cross so that you could be with him demonstrating love, not just saying it, but demonstrating it, that response is, I give you my life, my love, my all. You have everything. So without a proper punishment and payment, there's no real depth of love. This is what Jesus brings. But then not just so you can feel loved, but then so that you can conquer sin. You don't have to keep sinning. Because the overwhelming nature of God and his love and his spirit now gives me power because now he gives me the ministry to reconcile the earth and you and you and you and say God can do it for you and he's paid it for you. Believe and trust in him. And it's not then just believe like I believe the sun is hot. I believe Jesus is God. But it's everything my whole life. And it changes and transforms my very heart, my very worship, my prayers, my actions. Because he paid at price no one else can pay. And we serve a God that proved his love in Christ Jesus. I want to ask you to stand to your feet. We're going to close. We're going to have some worship. We've got one more thing for you, but I'm going to ask our one-to-one team to come up. And you know, in our in our digital age now, I love I listen to sermons and I, I love I love listening to YouTube. I mean, I'm I'm all over it. And and you didn't have to come today. You could have you know listen to the sermon later or whatever. And it, it takes a lot of work to get in the shower, get your kids, and come to church. And I would hate for you to miss an opportunity because you're physically present somewhere to hear the word of God to not pray with somebody. You can't baptize yourself after a podcast. You shouldn't. You can't have someone lay hands on you as a foundation of the faith to pray for you and maybe even see deliverance of sin in your life. See salvation by coming to someone and bring, being accountable to them and confessing them before God before men. This is the beauty of physically being here. We always want to invite people. If you want to pray, we're here to pray for you no matter what it is. Maybe you're struggling with a sin today. And just like C.S. Lewis said, man, if, if that thing continues, it is hell. God wants to stop it. And not just make you feel bad, but set you free.
Maybe you want to take communion at one of our stations and just recollect on what God has done. Maybe in here, something clicked in you and you realized, wow, love is Jesus. And what he did matters and was needed. And you want to know that kind of God. You can have a relationship with him right now, praying with us, praying there where you are. We've got this prayer request next step card. I mean, you can check there. I want to know more about relationship with Jesus or whatever. Put your name, information. I had someone first service said, yeah, I did that. I filled that out. Uh, let's do coffee. Awesome. We'll meet with I'll call you anytime. Let's talk about this life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Don't pass up an opportunity, though. Let those who have ears hear. And let's deal with some things if we need to. But let's ultimately come to a loving God who is full of love and his justice was achieved on the cross for you and me so that we could be transformed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we have to worship you. God, we thank you for the simplicity of the gospel and the depth of the situation that we're in, God. That with hard questions require some hard answers, but God, we thank you, you are the answer. You proclaim that, Jesus, as the way, the truth, and the life. We bless you. We worship you in this time. Jesus, amen.